0: Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Good afternoon. I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people, and pay respects to Elders past and present. Sovereignty was never ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. So good afternoon and welcome to Performing Lives and welcome to this wonderful panel. I'm your host for today, Maeve Marsden. Um, I've got with me today one of Australia's most acclaimed actors of stage and screen, Heather Mitchell, whose book Everything and Nothing depicts the light and shade that coexist in love, family and the arts. Next to me, ABC arts journalist with more than 20 years' experience in the media, Manio Bobo's Hip Hop and Hymns recounts growing up African-Australian and forging a career via New York and artist and queer community advocate in the beautiful lime green, Shane in the Act charts its hard-won journey to fame as drag artist Courtney Act. Thank you all for coming along, and thank all of you. Oh yeah, let's start with applause. It's performing live, so we can start with applause. Um, all of you have written memoirs that connect really beautifully with broader social issues, whether that's the arts, family, queerness, race, um, there's much more to them than meets the eye. So I'm going to start with a really open-ended question, and I'm curious to see what you'll
1: say. Apart from being about yourself, what's your memoir about? Mania Hip Hop and Hymns is a coming-of-age story about growing up black in a country town here in Australia. It's also about my struggles trying to forge a career in the media Mm. as a black woman, and I think right now it's very relevant. I have incidents in that book, which are very recent, Mm. that talk to what's going on in Mm. the media right now, and it's such an important book, and I was told yesterday that it's flying off the shelves. So when you walk out of here, we're
0: starting with plugs. We're going straight
1: into <laughs> that's plugs. Right, that's right. So make sure you get a copy before they run out because because it is a very important book. And I think that it's really timely Lovely. as well. It is. I mean, I would agree with you. Um, Heather, what's your book about? Um, I think my book, my
2: book is um, partly about a leap of faith, really, which is mm. kind of what writing the book was, really, a um, sort of a leap of faith. Um, I think within the title, um, Everything and Nothing, which was actually the title came up, um, a girlfriend of mine um, read the book and uh, for me an early draft and said, um, I think this is a great title for it. And I thought, what a perfect title, because I feel within the book, the Everything and Nothing... Uh, relates firstly more directly to a haiku poem which my mother um, as she was dying had next to her bed which is in my 10-foot bamboo hut this spring there is nothing there is everything and I try through the book to illuminate the idea that when there is appear apparently sort of difficult things before you in life difficult struggles different challenge different difficult challenges that um, there's the possibility of anything that anything Mm. can come out of that. And so I think to sum up, that's one of the things within the book anyway.
0: Can I ask, before we go to Shane, you said it was a leap of faith to write it. Can I ask how that played out, the decision when you've always been a performer to pivot to writing a book? Well, I had no intention of writing a book
2: ever. Um, I was invited to do some writing by a wonderful man called Malcolm Knox, who's a brilliant novelist and journalist. And he came to me one day and said, I think I'm looking for new voices, why mm. don't you write some story from your life? Um, I intentionally did not write, consciously did not write about the industry that I'm in so much, but very personal stories. And um, each week I'd send him another story and he'd say, keep going, keep going. So the book came about by, purely by another person's encouragement. Mm. Um, so it was his leap of faith in me yeah. and I'm very grateful to him for just encouraging it. Mm.
0: Well, you've got a talent for it, It's beautiful writing. Um, Shane, what's Caught in the Act about?
3: I'd say it's about identity, mm-hmm. um, specifically around gender and sexuality and queer themes, but maybe also, like, about critical thinking. Yeah. I think a lot of it is a, sort of my process of understanding and coming to understand who I am inside a world that maybe didn't have a place for me. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I kind of think, weirdly, that critical thinking part is a part and also a little bit of education.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yours does that really beautifully. Um, Shane's referring to Courtney facts that are littered throughout the book that kind of pivot from a memoir lens to, get yeah, an educational one. What was the decision to put those in?
3: I just knew that there was, even amongst, like, my, you know, queer friends, there was not necessarily... An understanding, a uniformed understanding of different terms and ideas, and and that was just amongst the people who knew. Like I knew there'd be people picking up this book who might not be um, involved in the in- intricacies of the LGBTQIA+ community. So I just wanted to give them like a definition as best as I could um, to help understand and explain all of the different nuances because sometimes we come to these conversations with a lot of assumed knowledge or you hear two people talking about something on television and you're like yeah I, I agree with them I don't know why and I wish I knew why and I wanted to give people the information that they could then hopefully make their own decisions.
0: Yeah it was, it was well done it was lovely. Um, you each write about how vital creativity is to your identity whether that's writing Writing poetry, music, drag, acting. Um, what does it mean to you to live a creative life, Heather?
2: Look, I find as I get older, it's
0: more and more important to me. I feel like all
2: the things that have happened in my life, and particularly being an actor, has enabled me to use so much of what I have experienced in my life in my work. And so I'm so grateful for that. But I find in terms of creativity, I I kind of find it's essential. It's an essential part of my life now. And I find that I actually feel really driven to uh, turn almost every event into <laughs> some form of a creative event, whether it's a, going for a walk or... Um, I mean, you know, I, I, I really... I wake up feeling excited about what might eventuate that day. I actually think... Um, I feel more excited about life than I ever have. I feel, I feel excited about aging even. I mean, I don't like a lot, but I had breakfast with some girlfriends who were here today and we talked about health a lot, but um, that seems to be one of the topics. But I, nevertheless, despite the, some of the difficulties with aging that are bound to happen, and we know that they're inevitable, um, I find that changing perceptions, changing my way of thinking, remaining curious, And I think they're all the keystones of creativity is what gives me so much enjoyment of life. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the creative thinking, creative approach to things, um, whether they're, you know, life has suffering in it. Mm -hmm. So I don't want any suffering to necessarily predict what the future will be. Mm -hmm. So I want to deal with suffering in as a creative way and approach it as creatively as possible Mm -hmm. so that it's, um, you know... A doesn't, isn't a negative in the future.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that really comes across in the book. There were times I was reading it and I was like, this is a beautiful story, but also somehow a self-help book. And it's like telling me how to live differently. It was really wonderful. Shane, what does it mean to you to live a creative life?
3: Um, I think maybe in a way that, like, drag is this artifice that points at a bigger picture, like drag can just be colorful, pretty things, but I think it also can point to the fact that we're all creating our identities in different ways by the clothes that we wear and the jobs that we have, the food that we eat, the partners that we have. and um, and. I think in a way creativity and um, the arts and creative people are almost just reminders of like we're, all, we're just the people who chose to do it deliberately <laughs> or who got to the privilege of doing it deliberately for our jobs. But I think uh, humans are just inherently creative and mm. so finding that creativity in everything that we do all the time I think is, is what can give life, you know, that consistent newness.
1: Mm. Manu. For me, creativity is all about writing. So everything I do boils down to that. So I write song lyrics. I write as a journalist for work, articles. I've written hip-hop and hymns. Mm. I write all sorts of different things. I really only have one skill, which is writing. (laughs) And you did it from when you were very young. From when I was very young, I used to write poetry. So I think... Basically, it's that one skill that I'm able to apply to a lot of different areas. Mm. That's creativity to me. How did it differ, though? Because obviously, yeah, you're a journalist by
0: trade. And even though arts journalism has creativity and some of the personal within it, it's different to memoir where you're making yourself the subject. How did that shift for you while writing the book? And was it a challenge to turn the lens on yourself like that?
1: I didn't find it too much of a challenge because I'm pretty obsessed with my story. (laughs) I'm obsessed with myself. (laughs) Just because... I love that you just owned that. Like, memoirists are like, oh, no. It's like, no, I just just find
0: myself really interesting. (laughs) I'll admit it
1: because... As a journalist, I can spot a good story when I see one. I can spot a good story when I see one. And I was living my life and feeling like, this is a freaking good story. Like, I need to write about this. So, so I guess the thing for me was I was able to take time away from my day job. I applied for a grant yep. and got it, which was amazing, you know. The Australia Council of the Arts could see Mm. the merit in what I was doing Mm. and therefore that gave me the time and the space to put work aside and just focus on my memoir Mm. and that was crucial because Mm. they are two very different types of writing I don't think I could have gone from writing articles all day to writing my memoir at night it would would have just done my head in yeah yeah
0: so yeah you did need to shift into a different gear absolutely Shane, did did drag and your creative life prior to writing a book influence the way you kind of structured or wrote it?
3: Yeah, I mean, I was used to writing cabaret shows and I would usually start by writing a story for a show based on a real-life experience, so it's sort of memoir, um, and it would sort of be several pages long and then I'd have to cut it down to just one paragraph and find how to get the story out the quickest and usually the funniest. Um, and so writing this book was just a joy. Brad, my writing partner, when I do cabaret, and he's a comedy writer, he's like, oh, you're gonna love writing a memoir. He's like, you can spend two and a half pages describing the light coming in through the window. This is,
2: <laughs> this
3: is perfect for you. And I think I wrote 220,000 words, which we edited back to a polite, I think 80,000. My publisher Lex, like there was like a while where there'd been a bit of a gap a bit of a gap and she was like, Oh I'm a bit worried. Um, I haven't heard from you in a while, what have you? And I sent I sent her what I'd done and I think she was just expecting like a first fit, and I sent her like two hundred and twenty thousand words. She was like Oh well when I said right everything I just, <laughs> I don't know. But I was told that was a very good place to edit from.
0: I also also have a cabaret background and I think there's something that happens to us when we're released on a longer medium than a tight hour with songs in it. (laughs) Because the first time I wrote a play, I wrote like, 145 pages, and they were like, this is going to be five hours long, and you are not that
3: kind of playwright. It had to be half that length. So yeah, we're like, released. I remember saying like, can't we just put it all in? And they're like, that's like bigger than Obama's book. And once I had a visual, I was like... (laughs) Okay, yeah, no, I'm not that grandiose. I definitely I definitely acquiesced there.
0: I love this. Oh. Um, Heather, your book is structured into three sections, girl, woman and mother. What made you frame it this way? What do these three roles and sections mean? Um, it, that also was not my idea. Uh, Malcolm Knox, I
2: was, as I was sending him these um, very personal stories, he then said, well, the stories are all great, but we need to structure it mm. somehow. So that was his um, offer to do it as girl, woman and mother. And remarkably, they seem to fit into those um, areas. The, um, I approached it very much as, because I'm an actor, I think I approach things very much as character-based. Mm. So I was, each of those sections was in terms of me as the girl, but the people around me as the girl was what I was focused on so that they were, and particularly the women in my mm. life as I was growing up, my mother and her two sisters and also my father, but... They, in some ways, have always been very vivid characters to me. And as I was growing up, I was almost collecting information about them and storing it away because I just loved them so much and wanted to never let go of them and be able to recreate them. So that was a joy sort of delving into that. And then in The Woman is where I talk more about um, not even so much as conscious identification as a woman because it wasn't as conscious as that, but I suppose from the time when I started menstruating through to sexual experiences through to, um, I can't even remember, but um, they seem to
0: fit quite well into those structures Mm -hmm. of those three parts. The section, the middle section woman has what felt sometimes as a reader, a kind of onslaught of experiences where your boundaries as a woman or your consent were violated. And did those stories kind of flow out of you or was writing them a kind of conscious feminist act to put them into the world
2: it sort of wasn't either it certainly wasn't a feminist act i had had um you know we're all aware of the me too movement and it definitely was a movement it was a time of agitation a time of it was literally things needed to be moved and enough uh uh, you know there was enough said that that people needed to be listened to. So that really was, I found it very confronting and um, it challenged my memories and challenged my perceptions of my generation, of me growing up in my generation. So I, it was more that I reflected on them and they didn't pour out, but they were, as with all my things, they were quite succinct moments that I could remember vividly. Mm. And by writing them down and making them stories in a way, I was able to then reflect and understand how I had processed them mm. and how as a young woman there was not the permission to speak up or speak out and, or even to acknowledge that you were um, in a situation that was abusive or mm. was um, uh, very dangerous, not only to your physical well-being but to your emotional and mel- mental well-being. Mm.
0: Yeah, mm. And was that experience cathartic on some way, the writing? Not cathartic, no. no. I didn't find writing
2: at all cathartic. I didn't find it. Um, I didn't feel even particularly emotionally involved. I felt that the stories were so, um, maybe it's the age I'm at, so I have I found it more difficult to write about things which were in the last 10 years or mm. 15 years, whereas things were, which, which way in the past were very accessible and easy mm. um, to write about. So no, I felt that they were sort of, they were in the past mm. and I wasn't Needing to deal with them, mm-hmm. it wasn't an emotional um, uh, process. But I felt it was very important to have that chapter, for particularly, I think, for younger women to get some sort, and men, to have some sort of, um, just a little glimpse, from my point of view, anyway, mm. what um, what that was like.
0: Yeah. Mm. Um, Shane, you mentioned a few times what in your memoir that while writing you got very emotional Mm. and sort of were in floods of tears processing some of those memories. Can you speak to that?
3: Yeah, I remember there's a couple of stories. One, my first kiss at the Stonewall Mm. Hotel in Sydney, first kiss with a boy, Um, and I was 18 years old and... I remember I had always told the story a certain way when recounting it, like, oh, he was went down to the second level and was we sitting by the DJ booth and, like, kissed, and it was like, oh, my God, my first kiss, and it was always sort of, like, this cute, exciting story. But when I was writing, because I was really, um, I guess, trying to immerse myself into the not just the memory that I had, but maybe the sensations that came up from that in the, you know, the smells and the sounds and the feelings and, you know, the, the, the couch became, you know, the cigarette-punctured leather couch by the DJ booth and I can, you know, the smell of the Stonewall Hotel. Um, Say <laughs> so no Yeah. And, you know, and even... Because that whole writing in that whole section, I was just opening so many different boxes in my brain and... I remember as I wrote about it, what had always been a happy story. I just stopped and was overcome mm. with emotion, because it wasn't that the, the kiss was exciting, the acknowledgement and the revelation of, uh, of of who I who I was, who I had always been was was magical. But actually, what it represented was the 18 years of confusion that came before that, and that was sort of the the doorway through which everything else began. And so, having never had understood or I guess understood in different ways, but then going back when writing a memoir, really going into the deepest childhood regression therapy that I've ever mm. participated in. Um, and it's yeah. nice to
0: get paid to do therapy, it's, though, rather than.
3: It's paying kind to of do lovely. <laughs> My, uh, my mental health care plan has run out of my however many for the year, so I've got to just go You're back to writing memoir. a book. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was so cathartic for me. There was different moments like remembering stories about my mum or my dad that I hadn't... I just thought, like, oh, yeah, that's just what parents did, and then as an adult looking at that going, wow, that was some amazing parenting that they, they gave me.
0: Mm. Yeah, they were very progressive for our generation. Um, Manyo, you know, you said, oh, I was writing it because it was a great story, and it is, but obviously you wrote about some really difficult periods in your life. Um, Did you find that cathartic, re-traumatising? What was it like for you to access that, or did you have a bit of journalist's distance?
1: It was actually more healing than traumatising, I think, Mm. because I basically wrote about things like mental health issues and things like, domestic violence, things like being in a relationship with someone I was so madly in love with, you know, he was madly in love with me as well, but it just was never going to work, things like that. But the fact of the matter is I had had distance from those events, just like what Heather was saying. I think that really helped having Mm. that distance because I wanted to write about this maybe 15, 20 years ago but that wasn't the right time because I hadn't healed from some of those experiences, I guess. Mm. And also some of the stuff that's in the book hadn't happened yet. Yes, yeah, true. <laughs> so, so it really was all about timing and I think... I did find it a little bit cathartic, yeah. Mm, that's beautiful. Um, the book's called Hip Hop and Hymns, and it's about, well,
0: it's not, I mean, it's about many things, as you've said, but you're sort of guided throughout in your connections to hip hop culture and music and religion. Um, can you talk about the choice of title and how these two kind of cultures have shaped you?
1: So basically when I came up with the title, I was just thinking, what are two things that describe me? It's mm. a memoir. So mm. I'm thinking hip hop, hip hop. Hip hop, <laughs> hip hop and hymns. That's it. Yeah. Hip hop and hymns. And when I came up with that, I was, it just felt so right. Yeah, like it just suited the book so well. And when I was writing it, I wasn't writing it as you know trying to stick to that title. It just happened. Mm. That I talk a lot about music throughout mm. my book, and there's actually a playlist, and you can follow it on. Spotify. It's got all the songs that I mention in the book. And they're not all hip-hop songs and they're not all hymns. Someone just left to go buy my book. If you wait until after <laughs> the session... If you wait until after the session, I'll sign them and we can have a chat. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so basically the music side of things is... Like, it kind of affected my life in so many ways, music mm. did. And so that's the prism I use to... Explore my life, mm. and what about your faith?
0: Because that obviously comes through a number of times as well. How does your faith interact with your creativity and your writing?
1: So I really struggled with my faith a lot. So I'm a very strong Christian now. I'm not. I'm not saying I'm a good Christian, just a very strong Christian. I'm, I had, That's a good I had faith, um, but I really struggled. You know, I had a lot of questions why would Eve want an apple anyway? Why not chocolate? Um, But I had a lot of questions and it got to the stage where I was able to reconcile what I believed with what I believe is the truth. And that comes through in the story and there are conflicting moments where I'm sort of, you know, thinking, oh, you know, I want to do this, I want to do that, and I do this, and I do that, <laughs> and, and it's not very religiously based and stuff like that, and I feel really guilty about it, but at the end of the day, I am a woman of faith, and that is definitely a thread throughout my memoir. mm.
0: mm. Um, Heather, your father was a Quaker and your mother was Jewish. And like Shane's parents, they come across in the book as very progressive for their generation as well. How did faith or spirituality impact your life?
2: Um, my, yeah, my father was uh, a Quaker and the Quakers, if no one knows, are a society of friends uh, and they're pacifists. Um, he came from, he was American, came from Nantucket and originally Scotland. My mother was a St- Sydney um, girl, Grow, up in in a Jewish household. Um, they both, although neither of them necessarily strictly followed either of those religions, they took from those, both of them, what they believed were the most important aspects of them and explored many, many other philosophies. And um, I would say they were both very philosoph- philosophical people. They also... Um, Uh, my father did uh, meditation, um, learnt transcendental meditation back when, oh gosh, when the Beatles learnt it, basically. (laughs) So um, he was one of the first people in uh, Australia to learn it. And then, so he introduced that to my sister and I, so we always did meditation together as a family. I mean, my parents were very... um, although they lived in a, we lived in a small country town, they were very worldly people. Mm. They had both travelled extensively. Uh, they met in China. They were very influenced by Buddhism as well. They were collectors, really. My mother was a collector of people and my father was sort of a collector of um, philosophies, mm. really. So it had an enormous impact on me. Mm. Enormous. And I think that... Um, I think I'm very much a product of both my parents mm. and and all the people who surrounded them and who I met through them really. Mm. So I don't have any particular uh, religious faith. I don't follow any particular uh, belief, but um, I think as an actor as well, um, and I would say is, I would say this, and I'm making a huge generalization here of anyone who practices um, in any form that they are in love with or something that they love doing at some time has experienced um, that sort of transcendent feeling where you're in the flow, so to speak. And that can happen in any walk of life or in anything that one does. But once you've experienced that, where you're so totally in the moment with the thing that you're doing, it's very hard to ever shake it. Yes. And that can be a very spiritual experience as well, which I think a lot of people, we're talking about creativity, remain creative and keep pursuing it because they've had that experience. And it's about sort of attaining that again in some form.
0: Mm. Mm. Shane, you meditate as well. It's part of your... Practice, how does that feature in your creative life? There's a very charming anecdote about not being able to meditate properly when you're in the Big Brother house, or you weren't able to do your gratitude (laughs) journal, which I Lovely, But how does that feature for you in your life?
3: Um, Well, for creativity, I find... So meditation, the style of meditation I've done is Vipassana, which is where you you go away to the Blue Mountains for 10 days and you don't talk to anybody and you silently meditate for like 11 hours a day. It's like quite intense. Um, And I've done that a few times over the last 10 or so years. And I have found that there's like my thinking mind... Um, But then where my creativity is contained is the... Like, usually I will think I've got to wait for that creativity to come. I've got to wait for that creative spark to come. I'll just input what I know I'm working on. I'll put in all the details, and then that little creative spark will pop up. And usually it does, which is wonderful. But I know that with meditation, um, I sort of, like clear the clouds of my thinking mind and actually the creativity is kind of the thing that's bubbling underneath. Mm -hmm. Um, And so meditation just helps me to focus on the present moment, Um, usually just sort of like focusing on my breath, focusing on the sensations of my body and that tends to, uh, yeah, stop the thinking because thinking is something that's happening about the future, about the past. Mm -hmm. It's not something that's happening right now. Um, And there's something really powerful about that um, and it's something that I try to do as often as I can. I go through phases where I'll do like 40 minutes each morning and night and then nothing for a while and mm-hmm. then 20 minutes here and 20 minutes there, but it's definitely always a part of my life.
0: Lovely. Um, with with creativity and, and the creation of work that you put into the world comes an audience and with an audience comes feedback. Um, Manya, you write music reviews um, and in your book you speak about how hard you've find it to write negative reviews, that you don't like writing negative reviews. Has writing your own book and putting it out into the world changed that?
1: I don't think it's changed it so much because I've always been very cautious of if I have something negative to say about a work of art, Mm. I better provide a pretty good reason as to why I don't like that. And I've always abided by that. I don't think that it's fair to criticise something and not explain why it's bad. Mm. And so, and so um, I've always felt that way. Mm. And I do write in hip hop and hymns about a situation where I was reviewing music and that sort of thing and found it so difficult. There was one particular album I was reviewing and I, the first time I listened to the album, I thought, this is a terrible album. <laughs> but by the 20th time I'd listened to it, I thought, oh, it kind of grows on you. <laughs> and this was a big, big artist, right? And so I'm writing the review and you can see me backpedaling towards the end of the review. I started out slamming the, the um, album. And then by the end of it, it's like, well, you know, if you listen to it 20 times, it ain't that bad. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I've stepped up my game since then for sure. But I think writing a book and putting such a personal story out there into the world, I definitely, you know, I feel for people. Mm. And I've, I've always felt for people and always thought, at least they're trying. Mm. So I always take care with reviews. Mm. Um, Shane, i listened to your book
0: on Audible and i glanced through the reviews, and literally the only negative ones... People love it when you bring up their negative reviews <laughs> on stage in front of an audience. The only negative ones were people who were shocked by the graphic sex scenes. They were There was pearl clutching over the sex scenes. And I personally loved the sex scenes, and not just because queer sex is universally hot, um, <laughs> but specifically because I think often queer lives get put in boxes where we either have to sanitise them in order to like speak about childhood, or speak educationally, or porn. And the idea that you were able to include really hot and steamy sex scenes alongside childhood reflections and education about identity was delightful to me. But I am curious as whether conversations happened in the writing process about those inclusions and whether anyone was, like,
3: pearl-clutching to you before the book was in the world. But that was the other 140,000 <laughs> words that didn't, <laughs> that didn't... make it in.
0: Oh, my God, send them, send them.
1: <laughs> Do you know it's?
3: It's funny because I... I think I naturally wrote those stories sort of in their entirety, like, each interaction, I wanted to explore it all, and I... I enjoyed exploring the sex side of it because I, I tried to think, like, if this was, if this was like a guy and a girl in a, you know, sort of status quo sort of setup, would this be transgressive? Mm. Um, and I think, I mean, usually there's not a lot of rimming in those books, so. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <Far large. laughs> Uh, so maybe not, but no, I just wanted to explore the honesty of, of sex and as something that was beautiful and enjoyable and, um, and also, yes, at times sordid, and also at times um, destructive or at times creative and, and all of the different ways um, that sex and sexuality manifested. And to, to know that, like, the, the book goes on a journey and you start talking about childhood and then once you've lulled everybody into a false sense of security... <laughs> You're in a toilet cubicle at the Oxford Hotel and yeah, you're like, oh, well. <laughs> Here we
0: are. Yeah, I was just well, watching her on One Plus One life.
3: interview, Baz Luhrmann, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, so I just wanted to include the honesty of it because I think it's important to share all of those parts. And I think as well, like, there can often, like, queer identity almost feels... Um, uh, like some of the most visible parts of queer identity are sex because they're the things that make us different from heteronormative people. And so sometimes there can be a fixation or a fascination with sex of queer people. Um, and so to just describe it in quite honest terms felt like something that maybe people would see themselves in if they mm. weren't queer and be like, oh, yeah, I have also done some of those mm. <laughs> I made a little list.
0: Um, <laughs> <laughs> Take a shot every time. Of, did you feel a responsibility to the community? Were you worried specifically about, like, queer community response when you were writing?
3: Um, yeah, I wanted to, especially in the Courtney fact sections, I, wanted, I knew that, like, giving a definition of anything um, mm-hmm. is probably going to be only historically accurate yeah. for a limited period of time. I wanted to consult as many different people as possible. I wanted to make it as broad as possible, but as specific as possible. Mm. So, sometimes I just, uh, yeah, I had to, um, I, yeah, I wanted to give some good good feedback. And I did consult a lot of people um, about those definitions and, and being I guess responsible to the community is I think just by being honest and by being authentically yourself is how you be responsible <laughs> so that part I, I don't think I was concerned about it was actually more in the definitions and yeah, wanting nice. to make sure that I included everybody and yeah. said it how they'd like it said.
0: That makes sense. Heather you've worked in theatre and film for decades and I should have written the number down but it was upwards of like 200 film theatre and TV productions more, I think. Um, how has the shift been into publishing and literature? Is does it feel like a different audience relationship or a different critical relationship? Oh, it feels quite different. Yeah, and um, it's I
2: feel very freeing. It feels very freeing to me. I I suppose because it's not something I ever imagined I'd do. So I decided I think not to be critical not to be self-critical of it Mm. while I was doing it because it was an invitation and it was an act of generosity that this person had asked me to do this so I thought I'll just give it a go Mm. so I felt like I had nothing to lose Um, and so I think what mattered more to me was anyone who was mentioned in the book anyone that I didn't want anyone to be hurt put it that way Mm. and I uh, also wanted to make sure that I'd only told my story and not anyone else's. So I think that was my guidelines. And I thought, if I do that and no one's hurt, then whatever people think of it, they think of it. You know, I yeah. didn't, um, it didn't really bother me. I mm. mean, obviously it's lovely if people say they enjoy something you've done or you've put your heart into, then it, that's really, really gratifying and lovely, particularly if someone, it resonates with them in some mm. way. But it wasn't, certainly wasn't why I wrote I wrote it simply as a challenge I wrote the book because it was a challenge and so I'm just grateful (laughs) to be here really.
0: (laughs) Um, It comes across throughout that your creativity feels quite like internal rather than fame-seeking or attention-seeking of any kind, like it's quite an internal and beautiful process for you. Yeah, I feel um, it's one of the things I
2: think uh, always asking myself and I think all creative people do is why am I doing this? Mm. What do I get out of this? Why do I keep doing this? Why is it essential? And I keep coming back to I'm really interested in people mm. in the end, really. It's sort of a um, just interested in why we're like we are, really. And yeah. how we connect. Yeah. Mm.
0: Um, Manyo, your book explores your relationship, which you mentioned earlier, with Tice, an Indigenous boy you went to high school with and you reflect on the different ways the two of you experience racism in Australia, yourself a black migrant and him a First Nations man. Um, how did you navigate writing about these ideas and these communities? And have you had any feedback from the communities about how you shared your stories?
1: I've had a lot of feedback and it's, all, it's been overwhelmingly positive from my um, people of African descent, mm. as well as people, indigenous people, they love it. Mm. They love hip-hop and hymns. And I think part of, that re- part of the reasoning I've been given about wow. why they love it so much is because it's so authentic. Mm. It's real. Mm. It's very raw, but it's real. And it's real because I went to pretty much everyone who I had a relationship with and I did the journalistic thing and yeah. interviewed them. I interviewed people because I wanted to see what certain shared experiences that we'd had, how they viewed particular things that we'd been through together. Mm. And so by interviewing people, I was able to get a fuller picture of stuff that had happened to me that I was writing about. You really did make yourself the subject, yeah. Yeah, So, but the thing is as well, my publisher who's here in the audience, he was saying... He doesn't know anyone who went to as much effort as what I went to with a memoir to go to so many different people Mm. that I lived life with Mm. to just make sure that things were authentic. Mm. And it really paid dividends. And I think the, the key thing, though, is that I didn't ask for permission to tell these stories. I told people I was telling right. these stories. And people were fine with it. Yeah. But I wasn't going there saying, oh, can I please include you in my story? Because what if they said no?
0: <laughs> I was going to say, do you ask for permission or forgiveness? But you did something kind of in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What were you going to say, Shane? I was
3: going to ask, when you go to talk to them, I remember talking to some people from high school, and I had that weird moment where I'm like, so... What was it like when you were in high school with me? Was like, I was trying to avoid the narcissism of talking to people about myself. But when you're, when you're going to connect and interview these people, how do you frame those conversations?
1: Well, if it's my brother, for example, um, our discussion was actually really, really interesting because he, we didn't get along. We didn't get along growing up. We were at odds with each other during our childhood. And so interviewing him was actually quite heartbreaking, seeing things from his point of view, the way he saw certain things that had happened in our childhood. And so, you know, I tried to honour that in the retelling of this story. But, yeah, it really, really, really quite hurt. And was the
3: sister journalist line must have gotten confusing to negotiate?
1: No, I think uh, it was a sister-first approach. Okay, yeah. It was definitely a sister-first approach. And with other people, so there's an incident in the book where I'm bullied in primary school and it's by a guy and his sister was in the same year as me because we were in a composite class with this guy and his sister is actually a really lovely person, had no problems with her, she they're both characters in the book, and I've changed names to protect people's privacy, but I did say to her after she'd read it, because she posted on Facebook saying, what a great book, you know, I really love this. Was reading it at the beach, excellent work. I was like, "Uh, do you recognize any of the characters? (laughs) And she sort of said to me, oh, you know, you changed names and it was kind of hard. So I said, that's you. And And she was mortified about the way her brother had treated me and apologized on his behalf. And to me, that was, again, healing. Mm. It was incredible. Uh, with a
0: quote of your book Heather followed by a question you wrote the creative spirit is in everyone some people have nurtured and developed it while others have assumed it belongs only to people with talent or to their childhood and have dismissed it long ago as futile what advice would you give to someone who wants to engage their creativity but is afraid of failure or judgment as you have sometimes been well I wouldn't give advice
2: no No, well look Uh, Look, I do feel that. I mean, I like to believe anyway that everyone... I think we we were all children once. We all played. We all were inventive Mm. and creative. And I think that regardless of what the creative pursuit, whether it's, you know, gardening, whether it's playing football, I mean, which is really quite creative because you have to think on your feet. You have to, you know, it's kind of... uh, I think creativity, you know, requires curiosity. It requires flexibility of mind. It requires you know being comfortable with uncertainty uncertainty of um of not knowing what's going to come next and allowing yourself to just fall and um and be suspended but I mean from an actor's point of view and now my little experience as being a writer um it's also about doing Mm. it's just doing it so you get an idea to do something you just do it you do it and then you do it again and you do it again until it becomes a practice and before you know it, you've made something or you've done something. or you've. And so I just think so often we are living in our heads thinking, oh, I'd love to do that. But it is kind of like building your dream home. You have the idea for it and you want to one day live in it and be living in that and that's your dream. But of course, the foundations sounds like a pathetic metaphor, but the foundations are very important. Those foundations, I suppose, are the people you surround yourself with, the materials you put into that. And it's the doing it every day, not every day, but occasionally until you develop some sort of practice, I think. Mm. But that's for me, I would just say, just try it, try it and have faith that you're going somewhere. That's lovely.
0: Thank you. Um, We'll go to audience questions now. We've got one over here.
2: Thank you. Um, how do you see your artistry and
3: the responsibility of representation? How do you see that relationship and why, why is it important? Ryan was my producer on Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> and he was a wonderful person. In a world of story producers who I usually consider to be akin to the devil, uh, Ryan actually has no relationship with the devil except for the good one. Um, and... Um, I think on, when we were doing Dancing with the Stars, myself and my dance partner, Josh, being the first same-sex couple um, and also me performing in drag and thinking about the stories and the packages we would create to um, communicate with you know, mainstream Australia, I guess as I had done 20 years prior on Australian Idol, but in a very different world, um, was there was just something really thrilling about being given this platform and this opportunity to kind of... Be that person that I would have loved to have seen on telly when I was fourteen, um, and I think that's that's. Bef- I was talking to my therapist before I went into the c- Celebrity Big Brother house in 2018, and I was like, "Why am I doing this? What what's going on? Why am I?" And then he sort of asked me the question, like, "Why are you doing this? Who are you doing this for?" And when I sat in silence, I kind of I realised it was yeah that that younger self of trying to. Uh, increase visibility, tell different stories, show different stories, not just my story either, other people's as well. And um, I think for so long, we've only really heard one type of story being told and all of those other stories that have made to be sort of pushed down and swallowed are finally getting an opportunity to be shown. And I just... I think having lived in the US for 10 years, having lived in the UK and now back here in Australia, I'm glad to see that we are heading in the right direction, perhaps not fast enough, um, when it comes to you know all sorts of issues, racial issues, women's issues, queer issues, but I do think we're heading in the right direction and I, I am just excited about how art and creativity and performance can positively imp- impact that through storytelling.
1: Well, I think Nigerian author Chimamande Adichie Ngozi said it really well when she warned of the danger of a single story. Mm. Show a community one way constantly, and that's what they become. Now, I am a strong believer in that we need a lot more stories, Mm. not fewer. Mm. And basically, as a black woman, there are so few stories that tell my experience in this country, let alone all the other experiences within my community. And so I'm very passionate about telling my story because I hope it encourages others to Mm. tell their own. And I have been so honest in Hip Hop and Hibs to the point where I think there are people in my community who feel like they can't show their real Mm. selves because, you know, things like the media going on about African gangs and all sorts of stuff, because of that, they feel like they need to show only the positive side of things to combat all the negative. But I say no to that. Yeah. I say there are a lot of stories, and I bring my full self to Hip Hop and Hymns, and I would hope that others in my community eventually feel... Like, they can do that too. Well, it's
0: a privilege to be able to be flawed or to be able to fail. Like, that's privilege is to be able to fail and not feel like you're representing everyone in your community.
1: And that's the problem, you know, because there are so few of us in the public eye. We do feel like we're representing the entire community with everything we do.
2: Mm-hmm. Did you want to speak to this question? Oh, just simply that. I think at different ages, I've um, had different um, approaches to um, what I think that responsibility of of uh, your perception. Of what you're representing but I feel more than ever now as a more mature woman white woman um, having been brought up in a much more patriotic, um, not patriotic <laughs> patriarchal, <laughs> patriarchal society that um, I feel like it's uh, and also having done this writing now where I've had to think a lot about my mother's generation and her mother's generation and the, um, these women as they um, were at the prime of their lives wanting to do extraordinary things uh, be adventurers be you know, scientists and all sorts of things, unable to do those things, that I feel uh, the stories I want to tell anyway, both through acting and through this, is to um, at least encourage the thinking about a- ageing as not being a narrowing of life, not a but a more expansive quality, that it's not about failure to achieve certain things, but it's about um, expanding um, horizons. Beautiful. And um, I just feel that's the representation anyway. Mm.
0: Did the process of writing your memoirs actually reveal anything surprising to you about yourselves, something that perhaps you hadn't thought about before or hadn't seen yourself in that way before?
3: I think one of, them, one of the big surprises, which I sort of touched on earlier, was uh, my mum and my dad. I remember having... Moments, sort of describing them, like, with me as a young person, like, wanting a a Shearer doll for Christmas and uh, crying because I didn't get one. Um, And then my dad sort of finding me crying and and saying, like, oh, we tried getting Shearer, but she was sold out. Like, oh, let's go to Kmart on Boxing Day and, like, we'll we'll look look for one. And I was like, "Okay," And we went and she was sold out and there was a... um, Swift Wind, which was like Shearer's rainbow unicorn horse. <laughs> Arguably even more gay than Shearer. <laughs> and Dad was like, how about this? And it wasn't until I was writing the book that I was like... How many, you know, suburban dads in the 80s would have given their little boy the rainbow unicorn horse without question? And I I just didn't even know because it just... He never once made me feel like who I was was less than or that I should be any other way or that I wasn't man enough or anything like that. And I, I... actually don't think I had realised that. I had felt that from the world at large. I knew those ideas, but I didn't realise that my dad, my primary caregiver, and my mum were two people who never made me feel that way. And that, that um, discovery through writing my memoir was really powerful and really healing.
1: Yeah, what I didn't realise is that everything happens for a reason. I mean, you hear that all the time, yeah. right? But... You know, things happen throughout my life and you're like, why did I have to go through that? And then when you've got it in a book, Mm. you know, from front to end, you're like, oh, okay, you connect all the dots. Mm. You know, if that didn't happen, that wouldn't have happened and that wouldn't have happened and that wouldn't have happened. And that was a surprise to me. Lovely. But, you know, like I just, the humour as well in my life, like I laugh at everything. so That's how I get through things. Yeah. So there are a lot of very dark and difficult things in the book but the way I get through it is through humor and I think the surprising thing also was just how funny hip-hop and hymns is it's a a fun read I'm not a surprise so
2: much but um it was just a confirmation really of but just things being passed on from generation to generation and how um just sort of confirmed that very much for me Yeah, yeah that's all
0: yeah I think we've got time for one more
2: Um, Heather, you mentioned that transcendental state that you feel as a creative sometimes and that you're, once you've achieved that, you're often trying to, do you find yourself constantly chasing that or that high? That's an interesting question. Um, I don't find myself chasing it, but I know that it's in there. So it's more that it's like a special friend. It's almost (laughs) like I feel like I know it's there and, and that, you can't make it happen. It can never be, it's not, a, it can never happen in a state of force or, um, but it's when things are like, you know, it's with that, uh, Hugo, in the book I mentioned Hugo Weaving saying, um, just name dropping there, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but him talking about, an ex- we were doing a show together and he had to play identical twins and um, he had to race on stage and race off his that twin and come on that's in the vomitorium and they come on this one and he was doing a, one of the previews and he came on and he raced up and he came on and he raced up and he stood there and he went, I have no idea who I am and the audience just fell about laughing and he said to me afterwards I said what happened there and he said I was thinking I'm I'm in that state he said I was flying I was in the flow I was flying and I was thinking how magnificent I am (laughs) he was thinking wow I'm fabulous and the minute he thought that of course he dried and he couldn't think where he was so it's something you can't fabricate it's something that doesn't um you can't make it happen, so you can't chase it. But I think it's more. I suppose I only mentioned it because it's more that I think it's that that thing that um, even someone you know, like imagine an Olympian. I mean, a, an mm. athlete experiences that sort of high, and it does sort of keep you thinking. I wonder if it'll happen again. I wonder if it'll be there. Yeah, and but there you is... can have those experiences in other ways. You know. Yeah, it's not.
3: Um, a... I think of it as a wet piece of soap. <laughs> the harder that you try and grab it, the more it slips away. And it's one of those things that you just have to allow. And I think that's like, for me, identifies like the thinking mind is always trying to like think its way. But when you kind of allow However however, you find that, like some people find it through running or meditation or yoga or all sorts of things, um, it, it's allowing it to come. It's, it is that friend that's always there, but it's just working out how you can connect and communicate with it.
0: And not chase it. I remember once beating myself up for procrastinating because I had writing to do or lines to learn, and my partner, who's a film editor, said, what are you talking about? Procrastination's part of the creative process. And I said, oh, no, that's an excuse. And she said, no, it's not. Procrastinate for a day, you'll have it tomorrow. So I was like, oh, someone's given me permission. And it was true. I had it the next day. Like if you chase it too hard, it runs. Um, so yeah, you're allowed to procrastinate
1: is the <laughs> lesson for the day. Um, did you have any final thoughts? On well, I can really relate to that. I'm the procrastination queen. But <laughs> when I'm procrastinating, you know, when you're doing the dishes, I'm often thinking about what I'm working or what I should be working on And that in itself is part of the process, definitely. Yeah.
0: Beautiful. Well, that brings us to the end of the session. Thank you all. A round of applause again, please, for these beautiful panellists. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.